Welcome to the Inside Scoop Live podcast, where indie authors get personal about their books, their writing, and their passions. I'm your host, Sherry Hoyt. Join me for some lively conversations with debut indie authors and seasoned veterans alike. It's a great place to find your next amazing read or even get inspired. So sit back and enjoy the show and let me know what you think. Hey everyone, today my guest is Randy Overbeck, author of the Haunted Shores Mystery Series. He's here to tell us all about the third book in his award-winning series, Scarlet at Crystal River. But before we get started, here's the inside scoop on Randy. Dr. Randy Overbeck is an award-winning educator, author, and speaker. As an educator, he served children for four decades in a range of roles captured in his novels, from teacher and coach to principal and superintendent. His thriller, Leave No Child Behind, 2012, and his recent mystery series, the Amazon number one bestseller, Blood on the Chesapeake, Crimson at Cape May, and Scarlet at Crystal River, have earned five-star reviews and garnered multiple national awards. As a member of the Mystery Writers of America, Dr. Overbeck is an active member of the literary community, contributing to a writer's critique group, serving as a mentor to emerging writers, and participating in writing conferences such as Sleuthfest, Killer Nashville, and the Midwest Writers' Workshop. When he's not writing or researching his next exciting novel or sharing his presentation, things still go bump in the night, he's spending time with his incredible family of wife, three children and their spouses, and seven wonderful grandchildren. For more information about Randy Overbeck and his work, visit his website at authorrandyoverbeck.com. Well, hi, Randy. Welcome to Inside Scoop Live. I'm delighted to be here, Sherry. Well, I should say welcome back, because we talked last year about your book, Crimson at Cape May. Uh, so what have you been up to since we talked? And can you tell us a little bit about your new book, Scarlet at Crystal River? I would be happy to do both. I'm happy to say that uh, things have gone very well. The first book in the series, Blood on the Chesapeake, this last month, uh, became a number one bestseller on Amazon and Barnes & Noble. Wow. So I have uh, great hopes for the, all three books in the series so far. The second book, the book you mentioned, Crimson and Kate May, has won three national awards, including yours. And I'm um, very, very hopeful for the third book. So I'm at a very good place right now. That's wonderful. Congratulations. Yeah. Thank you very much. In the first book, we met Daryl and his girlfriend at that point, uh, Aaron, and his encounter of a ghost in his work as a teacher and a coach. And the second book, Crimson at Cape May, he travels to a new location, Cape May, New Jersey, where he ends up running into another ghost. And we extend the story of the romance between Daryl and Aaron. Mm. So it seemed like a logical possibility for the third book to bring that romance full circle and start with a wedding. And that's where book three begins. Book three, Scarlet at Crystal River, um, begins as Daryl and Aaron are heading on their honeymoon to Florida over the Christmas holidays. So in addition to following in the past of the first two books, of it being a cold case murder mystery and a ghost story with elements of romance and also located in a beautiful resort location, Scarlet at Crystal River adds one more element, and that is it's a Christmas mystery. Mm. Okay, I love that. I think of Hallmark when I think of Christmas, but... <laughs> yeah, you're right. And 
and my wife is a sucker for both Christmas books and Christmas movies, which was kind of where I got the idea of wanting to do this. And, but I decided I wanted to do something different. Most every other Christmas movie or book is about, you know, snow capped lodge or someplace up yeah. north where we're, and I decided I'd go with a different route. So I, uh, and of course, if you're a teacher and you have two weeks off between Christmas and New Year's, you're doing your honeymoon, you probably want to go someplace warm. Oh, yeah. So I send Daryl and Aaron to Florida for their holiday. So we get to have a little insight into what it's like at Christmas time in Florida as one part of the story. Yeah, yeah. Thinking about your three books, there are four things that make your story stand out. And that's like the setting, the characters, the social issues, and then the ghosts themselves. And I wanted to talk about each aspect if we could. So I think starting with the setting, it's like most mystery writers, they place their stories in a particular setting. But with your Haunted Shore series, each mystery takes place in a different place along the eastern shoreline. Right, do you stick to the eastern shoreline or so uh, far? I have so far, although, I mean, technically the third book is on the Gulf Coast of Florida. But still, it's east, obviously, but uh, okay. not along the eastern line. So, and my reason for doing that is more practical to the story than any definite preference on my part. So, I started off on the Chesapeake, and I chose that location because I really, really love that area. It's one of the most, I believe, undiscovered gems in the U.S. It's just absolutely gorgeous, mm -hmm. especially in the spring and the fall just beautiful. I made a decision early on when I put this series together, at least when I envisioned the series, that I wanted to have different locations. Now, part of that is because I get to travel to each location and vacation there and spend time there and meet the locals and all that kind of stuff. But yeah. also, I thought it would be different. It was really interesting because I had an agent early on that was interested in my work, and her answer was, well, you can't do that if you have mystery series. <laughs> You have to do it in one location. I'm going, no, you don't have to. I said, first of all, all these mysteries, uh, usually cozies, that happen in one location, they have this little beautiful small town that has like 10 murders. I'm going like, you know, that just doesn't happen that way. <laughs> yeah. So I wanted it to not quite stretch the credibility as much. So that's, that's part of my logic. And the other part is I went to these places. Now, I, as I'm looking at future... Uh, the question of your saying, am I sticking to the East Coast? Uh, I'm looking at two more possible stories that I'm kind of, you know, uh, nurturing. Mm -hmm. uh, one of them would involve someplace on the Great Lakes, and another one would involve uh, someplace on the West Coast. But what I have to do for my readers is I have to find a way to get my protagonist to that location. So right. That's part of the story. At least it's part of how I try to make the story credible. Right, right. So you're already branching out a little bit, moving away from New England with your third novel. And so I love the New England aspect, I got to tell you, but why and how did you choose Crystal River? Well, I had decided I wanted to, do, wanted to go south, so that was part of it. And I know one of the things I didn't mention is I don't live in any of these places. Mm. Sometimes I wish I did. I wish I lived on the Chesapeake Shore, or I wish I lived in the area of Cape May, although not particularly this week. Because Cape May is one of those areas that got hit by the storm this week. But, oh, right, um, right. But instead, what I do is I go and spend time there and uh, soak up the atmosphere of the area. Now, I had to cheat a little bit with C Crystal River 
because I had done my research in Crystal River right before the pandemic hit. Mm. And of course, my intention was I was going to return about two more times, mm-hmm. but the pandemic put an end to that. So I had to do a lot of stuff over the phone. I actually looked at several, maybe four or five locations in Florida to find something that I thought would be appropriate because all of my locations are kind of small towns, mm-hmm. you know, kind of overlooked or not. I didn't want to do the Myrtle Beach. I didn't want to do Miami. I didn't want to do any of the big, you know, like Virginia Beach. I wanted to go to places where people don't normally know. Right. So, and I fell in love with Crystal River. Uh, it's an incredibly beautiful place, kind of off the beaten path, um, even though it's on the shore. It's very different, which is part of what I was trying to capture in my story. Yeah, and that's that was the one, the first thing that sets your stories apart for me, the, the not having it all in one place and, and kind of moving around the country. I think it's great for us um, armchair mystery travelers. <laughs> but then the, the second thing, uh, that stands out to me are your characters. And first of all, I love your not so perfect protagonist, the high school teacher, Daryl Henshaw. And, and, but what I love most about it is that you don't try to hide his flaws. And, and a high school teacher is not someone who is normally considered a hero. You know, I've spent 40 years in education before I became a writer. So it's all of my heroes are teachers. You know? mm-hmm. So, it was an easy jump to find someone. And this character is actually based on a couple of teachers that I've known more in what the kind of teacher they are than what they look like. Mm-hmm. So that is part of my intent is to show teachers in a positive light. But I don't think the teachers get enough of that as it is. Right, right. So I just love that you kind of have chosen an underdog, so to speak, for your hero. Can you tell us a little bit about Daryl's gift? Yes. Uh, Daryl has a gift of which he is struggling to come to terms with in that he, like many children, is able to see ghosts that others cannot see. And the way I write my stories is that the ghosts know that he's able to see them and communicate with them. So ghosts in need seek him out to try to find justice and to help them resolve their issues. Mm -hmm. Um, I did a lot of research on ghosts when I first started, and I tried very much with some uh, literary liberties, but I tried very close to stay to what has been documented by ghost hunters across the U.S. about how ghosts actually appear, the little bit we know about any kind of communication from the other world. So I won't say that mine's realistic. It's not. It's fiction. It's not, it's not nonfiction, but I try to keep it as close to those things that have been documented as possible. Mm-hmm. One of the reasons I chose to write this particular kind of ghost story is because I found a real lack of this thread of a ghost story. So if if you are a popular fan of ghosts, and I have read a lot of ghost books, nearly all of them fall into two categories. The one category I call the Stephen King terrifying category, where the ghosts are out to get you, uh, poltergeist type. Mm-hmm. And the other category is what I call Casper the Friendly Ghost, where the ghost is somebody nice who gives you answers that you can't get, and they help solve the problems, and sometimes they're funny. While I enjoy reading both of those, neither of those are very close to the actual truth. Mm -hmm. So I wanted to create ghosts that are a little closer to what we at least have been able to uncover thus far in the research that's been done in the paranormal to kind of keep that close. 
And so Daryl's the person I chose uh, to have this gift. He particularly doesn't like this gift because his first encounter with the ghost uh, was kind of conflicted. It ended up with his brother getting injured and a kid getting hurt. Mm. So he's very leery of these messages from the other side. Yeah. You know, that's another thing, the paranormal aspect. I mean, I think your ghosts are incredibly realistic, you know, kind of in a gives you goosebumps kind of way because they feel real. Are they all cold cases in which ghosts are trying to resolve the conflict so they can find peace? Yes. In each case, the ghosts, in this case, two ghosts, we'll talk about them in a minute, Mm -hmm. that haunt Daryl are ghosts that have died a sudden death, don't really know all the answers to what what happened to them and are looking for Daryl to help resolve that so they can move on to the other side. That's kind of the short way of explaining it. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I wanted to do something very different with Scarlet. So in uh, Blood of the Chesapeake, the ghost that haunts Daryl is the vision of this huge black teen that had been killed decades earlier. And just the appearance of this ghost in itself was terrifying. Mm-hmm. In the second book, it's a woman that's been killed. And the ghost is the ghost of a woman I was able to create what you were referring to, the eeriness of her in the sense of what she looked like. Her appearance from her violent death is enough to uh, give Daryl fears. Yeah. But in the third book, I'm dealing with children. So I had to think really long and hard how I was going to do this. I did not want to somehow create an image of children as being scary or terrifying or intimidating. So I tried to walk a very careful line where the reader is, along with Daryl, perturbed, upset, uh, moved by the appearance of the ghosts of these two young children, children ages five and six, but not put off by that, if that makes sense. Right. One part of me, I mean, I'm glad they're not scary as children. But now I'm feeling really bad for these children. What happened to them? And, you know, I guess that kind of propels Daryl to want to help them. And I don't know, children just kind of tug at your heartstrings in a different way. Right. And that, that's exactly my intent. And I thought that was a nice add-in because Daryl, of course, is devoting his life to children. Mm-hmm. Secondly, it seemed to fit with my Christmas theme in the story. So, you uh-huh. know, part of the issue of, of it being a Christmas is it's Christmas and he and his new wife, Erin, are trying to celebrate their first Christmas together and all that kind of stuff. But the other part is that he is trying to wrestle with this gift and trying to determine how do I do it? Can I turn my back on these kids? I want to, I want to do my honeymoon. I don't want to do all this other stuff and practically get killed. Right. But that's part of the tension, and it fits with the Christmas theme. Now, how does Erin, his new bride, feel about his gift? You know, from the beginning, I made Aaron initially uh, skeptical, but eventually kind of coming on board. So by the time we get to this third narrative, Aaron doesn't question the fact that he sees these, even though she doesn't Mm. generally see the ghosts. But and she is supportive of this. In fact, when what, what she gets upset about is when he leaves her out, when he tries to protect her by not telling her. 
she's quick to say, look, I'm, I'm no damsel in distress. I can handle this as well as you can, which oh. we find out. She, <laughs> so it doesn't bother her at all. But a little Easter egg that I put in this particular story is that in this story is the first time Aaron actually gets an actual glance at the ghosts. Oh. Where before he's never seen it. So I'm I'm interested to see how my readers respond to that. It'll be it will be fun. Yeah. Uh, yeah, nice. Can you tell us a little bit about the kids? Well, let me back up a little bit. So the other thing that stands apart with your series is that you include very relevant social issues. Even though they happened 20 years ago or so, um, they're still very much, unfortunately, issues today. You cover a an issue, an injustice in each of your novels. Can you tell us about the issue or injustice that the plot kind of revolves around in, in Scarlet at Crystal River? Yeah. When I was doing the research and coming up with the uh, murder mystery that I wanted to include in this particular story, I wanted to find a way to make sure that it was connected to a larger issue. I believe uh, with the great mystery novelist, S.J. Roseanne, she has a saying, she says, nonfiction is about reality, fiction is about truth. Hmm. So I try very hard to use my fiction to, to get across a truth as well as entertaining the reader. And in this case, the truth is about our callous treatment of migrant workers. Mm. Um, you mentioned the fact that the book is set in 20 years ago. Actually, it's set in 1999 and 2000. And what I was amazed is that the issues that we are grappling with, illegal immigration, with migrant workers today, are almost identically what the issues were in 1999 and 2000. Very little has changed. Yeah. In that year, nearly everything that we get in the grocery store was provided because of migrant workers, many of which are illegal. Mm. And this year, it's exactly the same thing. Different nuances and stuff from 20 years, but basically the issue is the same. And I know it's a divisive issue, mm-hmm. can be. So I tried to walk a very careful line. Up. I'm really talking about treatment of people, not really you know, what should you do and are they legal? That's kind of the issue that I deal with is how we treat these people who are providing service to us in this country. That's kind of the central line. And these children happen to be victims that are caught in the middle of this situation. Mm -hmm. So it's, it's humanitarian issue, not a political issue, basically. Yeah. Very well. That's exactly what it is. I, I'm I, at the heart of it. I'm talking about the humanitarian part of it, not the political part. I'm not trying to take a political stand on it, but I, I am very definitely taking a humanitarian stand on it. Yeah. Well, I know one thing our reviewer said that I'm just going to quote her. Overbeck encourages readers to evaluate their moral standards and consider how much different things could be if only humans could treat each other a little more humanely, regardless of race, wealth, ethnicity, or gender. So it's a very fine line in today's political world, but she definitely is, I think, focusing on the the humanitarian issue, as you pointed out. And I think the point is that 
regardless of your politics, we should all be able to agree on things like how these people should be treated. You know, mm-hmm. that's, that's a non-issue in terms of are they citizens or not. None of that really matters. And the strange part is uh, most people don't know that the vast majority of all the food we have in the grocery stores are a result of these people's efforts. Yeah. At working at less than minimum wage, you know. So somebody ought to be grateful. I am. I'll tell you that. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. What are some of the issues? What does that look like? What does their plight look like um, 20 years later? And how do you think we get past this or resolve this? Or can we? Well, yes, I think we can. With enough will, you can, we can resolve about anything in this country. But the main issue that I'm focusing on is treatment of the children. Mm. Uh, and the situation has not gotten any better. So, um, or at least I shouldn't say that it might be some better, but not not appreciably better. Uh, the real issue. I, I'm an educator, so the real challenge is that these children of migrant workers, mm-hmm. both legal and illegal, but it really doesn't make a difference. Mm-hmm. Um, their parents work at a certain location for a certain period of time, two weeks, four weeks, six weeks, whatever. Then they pick up stakes and move to another place. Mm. And they move, they go from Florida to Georgia, to West Virginia, to all over the eastern half of the U.S. And I'm supposing it's true on the California side. I didn't do the research over there. But each time they move, they have a new school, they have a new situation. So the kids have to start all over again. So. As tough as the physical, arduous labor is on the adults, which it really, really is, it's even harder on the children because they, most of them don't speak language, so they have that as a problem. And they're getting a new teacher and a new school and a new district every month, month and a half, which is a horrendous challenge. Yeah. Not the least of which is then many of these children are then pulled out early because if that's what your education's been like and it hasn't really produced a lot of positive aspects by the time you're in sixth or seventh grade you might as well go ahead and work the field so many of the kids are pulled out still and are working the fields mm. um, alongside their parents have no child care you know it just goes on and on and on it, when you add to the fact that the work that they do the work of migrant workers in the field is the single most dangerous occupation in the U.S. You have a stew for disaster you know, mm-hmm. all the way around. That's kind of what I'm trying to highlight. Wow. It, and these people are doing the work that, you know, well, they're taking American jobs. No, they aren't because, by and large, Americans don't want to do this work because the pay is so little and it's grueling. Right. I happen to love strawberries. Well, one of the things I learned in the research for this book is strawberries are one of the most debilitating crops for them to harvest because the only way they can do that is to bend over mm-hmm. and pull them off the plants one at a time. You know, uh, uh, uh. So you can imagine if you've ever done that in your garden and pulled over, and if you do that eight hours a day, it's just... Yeah, anyway, yeah, those yeah. issues are kind of what drove me to put these pieces in the story. Yeah, you hear about migrant workers, but I don't think, at least I haven't, you know, really considered the children and moving like that. I mean, moving to a new school is hard enough as it is in the best of circumstances for most kids. So I just, oh, I can't imagine. That's heartbreaking. And and I don't want to give second shift 
lots of the educators do a remarkable job trying to help these kids. But oh, yeah. that there's a limit. And that's one of the reasons that one of the really good characters in the story is a lady charged with kind of helping these kids get into school in her area and making sure uh, they're getting the help that they need. And mm. so, and I know there are lots of, there are lots of women and guys doing that all across the southeastern United States. So I wanted to kind of make sure they were, and she becomes a, an important person to give them a piece of the puzzle as to how to, how to get to the bottom of what happened to these kids. Okay, okay. So now Scarlet at Crystal River, you said is scheduled for release in just a couple of weeks. So September, 2021. Uh, do you have any events lined up for the official launch? Like live events? Um, no, I don't because we'll do most of the early launching online. I will travel to Crystal River uh, around Christmas time or after Christmas time to be able to do a physical launch at that particular time because that's when there's a lot of people there. That's when the book is set. Mm-hmm. So I'm going to wait until that particular time to be able to do that. Yeah. Um, in the meantime, I'm doing a great deal of online interviews like this, guest blog posts that try to help get the word out beforehand. Yeah. I know you also said you've been working on and scheduling a lot of online workshops. Uh, can you tell us a little bit about your online workshops? Or they in, are they in well, person? There are two avenues that I'm exploring. So uh, one of the things that I do is I do a lot of in-person author talks. My talks are really about ghosts. My in-person author talks are called Things That Go Bump in the Night. Mm -hmm. And uh, it's very popular. I had done about two dozen before the pandemic shut down and then had to cancel a a whole bunch. So I'm now in the process of rescheduling. And there's more than two dozen of those rescheduling scheduled now all Mm -hmm. over the country. And I do that as a way to promote all three books. But of course, I'll be leading with my new book when it launches in September. So I do that at groups, uh, clubs, organizations, uh, senior centers, pretty much any place that's looking for a speaker to entertain their uh, group. And then parallel to that, I'm doing a number of interviews uh, with both regionally and, and nationally. I've got an interview lined up uh, with NPR here in the Dayton area where I live, Dayton, Ohio, and that's scheduled for next month. And there are several other uh, interviews with national podcasts and radio stations like yours that I have lined up. And in addition, I'm trying to be a guest blogger on a number of sites Mm-hmm. Uh, of all different kinds. So hopefully all of that will help me be able to kind of convey and get the word out to, so that people can get an appreciation of the new book. Yeah, yeah. You sound so busy all the time. I just love all your efforts. <laughs> I'm sure it's a lot I, of work. My wife will tell you I'm busier now than I was when I was working. Oh, really? So, uh, <laughs> when I was, before I retired. I mean, there is more to do than I could ever get done. And that's kind of the things I've learned in marketing is you never do enough. No matter what you do there, you could do this. Oh, why don't you do this? Oh, why don't you do this? So it's a matter of choosing what might make a difference and what people might pay attention to. It's a very, I'll be honest, Sherry, it's a very challenging uh, task. I tell young writers, if you think this is what you're going to do to to earn a living and feed a family, it's going to be a heck of a challenge. Mm -hmm. I read the other day that there are uh, 6 million new titles out, came out in in 2018, the last year we've got any Wow. Real solid data. Now, six million new titles 
it's really hard to get a reader to pay attention to a title unless your name happens to be Patterson or right. um, Ivanovich or, you know, something like that. So to try to get noticed is hard. And somebody like me, most of the notice is word of mouth. Somebody else hears about it, sees it on a blog, tells somebody else. Yeah, absolutely. And, and do you feel like with Scarlet being your third book, do you feel like you're getting... Um, I don't want to say better at marketing because it's it's always a, a or learning by experience. Yeah. Um, but has it gotten any easier? Like, have you developed kind of a, a baseline plan that you use? Yes. I don't know if that I'd say easier, but I've been better able to develop an attack plan to decide, okay, I can allocate enough money to do these few things and then I can do this in these areas. And the other part is that with three books, I've developed a lot of contacts. I didn't even know of your site when the first book launched. Mm. And there are lots of other places like yours that I've learned over the period of the last two and a half years. And I'm a learner. I research and keep learning all the time. So I'm always looking for, yeah. well, will that option work? What if I did it this way? You know, And I'll be the first to admit, a lot of the things I tried have been utter failures. It just didn't make any difference at all. It didn't move the needle. Mm -hmm. But I just keep looking, twitching for the next one to see if I can, maybe that will be enough. And, you know, I my book got well enough to be able to get a number one bestseller on Amazon last month. So if I can do that once, I can do it again. So yeah, Absolutely. Yeah. And I feel like with three books out, you've already yeah. developed a following and, and so to speak. And so it's it's easier to promote three books than one. Just getting out there with your first book is really hard. It is, yeah, because nobody's yeah. ever heard of you and they don't know who you are. And yeah, the fact that I've gotten this and the fact that the first book has now hit the number one makes gives me a little more credibility than I had before. Yeah. I know that. So I'm trying to use that. Yeah, yeah. So I know it's a little soon to ask what's next, but um, you alluded to more Haunted Shores mysteries. Have you any idea when you're going to start looking at the next edition or have you already started thinking about a plot line and, and story? No, I'm, I'm in the very early stages of planning a book number four. And I don't think I'm almost positive that won't be my next endeavor. So I am hmm. about 75% complete with another book. That's not part of this series. It's another mystery. Hmm. Um, it's Hard Lessons. It's about drug dealer that is supplying drugs to a middle school, which ends up killing some kids and the effort to uncover who's behind pushing the drugs in the school. So oh, wow. um, it's a very different, it's not a ghost story. It's not any of those things. It's a solid amateur sleuth mystery. Mm -hmm. Again, featuring another educator as the hero. Although in this case, it's different because all of the good guys and bad guys are all educators. So Oh. It's a kind of a hard look at the world of education. So, and that one I will probably finish before the year's out. Mm. So, I, you know, it's, uh, that doesn't mean it'll get to any publisher by then, but it'll, it'll be ready, I think, by that time. Wow. Um, and I like to challenge myself. I like to keep coming with things that are different. So after that, I, I'm actually in the process right now of researching the book that will follow that, which is, Again, not connected. It's going to be a thriller about a woman who is a teacher during the Revolutionary War. Of course, they weren't teachers. They were tutors. But the Revolutionary War, that's a spy for the Americans, and she's tutoring British families. And 
I'm going to actually probably make her part of the Culpa ring. So I'm doing research on that, and that'll be my next challenge. Oh, my goodness. Just when I thought you couldn't get any busier, there you are. Um, so are you moving away from ghost stories or just exploring other genres? No, I, I'm not trying to get away from ghosts. These are all stories that I have been playing with over the years in my head and kind of reading up and doing research on and doing that kind of stuff. I like to challenge myself with something different. So the characters in the new book, they're very different. So the primary characters are in their 40s in the the mystery I'm working on in Hard Lessons as opposed to the 20s in mm-hmm. this particular story. Okay. So I like challenges. Can I do this? Can I come up with this? Now, I'm telling you all this and maybe I'll fall flat on my face and end up not getting the, any of these done. But I'm excited about it. I think there's a possibility. I've never read anything like the uh, Revolutionary War one. So I thought, well, that's kind of a good niche. So mm-hmm. we'll see. Yeah, wonderful. Well, Randy, thank you so much for joining us today again on Inside Scoop Live and sharing about your latest book. Well, Sherry, I really enjoyed our conversation. And, uh, and of course, I'm thrilled at the possibility of being able to share my stories with a larger audience. And I appreciate your chance to let me do that. Best of luck to you and the guys at Reader Views. I look forward to uh, working with you in the future. Thank you for joining me today for my interview with Randy Overbeck, author of the Haunted Shores Mystery Series. For more information about Randy and his work, visit his website at authorrandyoverbeck.com. And be sure to check out all our author interviews at InsideScoopLive.com. 